Happy New Year! It's the beginning of 2019, a fresh new year for the music business. To mark this change, we decided to take a look at where we've been by reviewing our top interviews as determined by you, the listeners. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we hear our most popular interviews about a variety of topics, from streaming to the inner workings of indie labels. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange. In late 2017, writer Liz Pelly pulled apart the so-called magic of Spotify in her piece, The Problem with Muzak. Pelly's concerns make the article and our conversation even more interesting to look back on one year later. So there's kind of two things going on here, I think. What you're saying is that Spotify itself is curating an environment or facilitating an environment of like what we'd call lean back listening, right? Where people put music on and it just stays on in the background and it's kind of this background music. And it's not, you're not listening to it because you like a specific artist. You're just like, oh, this is my Spotify and chill playlist or whatever. And I'm just going to put it on and I'm going to work all day and it'll just be there in the background and that'll make me happy or whatever the mood algorithm has has chosen, the mood that you've chosen, the algorithm that you've chosen to listen to. So that's the listener, right? But then you're also talking about because this environment, you know, because Spotify is sort of the king of streaming, artists are feeling like they need to make music that's going to get played on the most popular playlists. Right. And creating music that you call emotional wallpaper, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is also a good term. (laughs) So those are like sort of the two contentions that you're talking about right at this point. There's another facet to this debate that came out last year. There's a bunch of conversations about it, which was that this contention that Spotify is creating fake artists. Mm -hmm. And you don't go into that in this article, but I would be interested in your opinion on that. What is your thought on that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I definitely could have written about the fake artists phenomenon in this piece as well, because I think it speaks a lot to the sort of different ways that the platform undercuts artists in favor of its own content. So the fake artist phenomenon came about when some folks like discovered that Spotify had sort of commissioned these musicians who mostly had previously been making music for films and advertisements and things like that to make music to fit specifically into some of its most popular mood playlist. So yeah, I think that that whole story relates to several of the points made in the article in terms of the different ways that the platform's undercutting artists and also just like how tightly the platform is controlling what ends up on its most popular playlist down to the fact that they actually would commission work specifically for these playlists. And I think that it came up a lot in terms of the chill playlists and sort of like the easy listening ambient playlist, but I totally wouldn't be surprised if a similar 
phenomenon proved to be true on music of all genres in the future. That might have already started to happen. I'm not sure, though. I'm not really sure where the fake artists argument or or supposition ended up, because my understanding was that it wasn't so much that these artists were fake. Mm -hmm. It was more that they were producing music sort of directly just for these Spotify playlists. And then they had real lives as musicians and producers and stuff like that. And they made other types of music, but they also made these particular pieces that sort of went well with these more vibey playlists that are more like background music style. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, to me, it kind of seems like they're more like session players or people who maybe had their own music practice, but then on the side for work, they were also taking these jobs, making playlists. So, I mean, I think that, you know, some people made an argument that this was providing more work for artists, but I think that if it contributes to an environment that ultimately undercuts work for other artists, or if it contributes to this environment that's like not contributing to a sustainable economic system for artists, that like it's ultimately pretty harmful. So I would say that like up until this point in, in this conversation, the only thing that I would challenge you about a little bit, because I definitely I have a lot of points of agreement with you in this article, like really big ones. Mm-hmm. But the one point I would challenge you on is, so how is Spotify really that different from like commercial radio? Because commercial radio has been doing the exact same thing for, you know, 90 years, like basically just trying to to appeal to this this group of people who I always say on this show, 90% of people don't like music in America. But like, I I think what I'm really trying to say there is 90% of people are not obsessed music fans like you and me. They're just Mm -hmm. people who are more than happy to listen to whatever's on. You know, it's like you push the button, Hot 97 comes on or whatever, and you just listen and you're happy. And that's, and that is, so like that lean back listener, I feel like a huge number of people in America really are lean back listeners. And so I feel like Spotify, in this exact case that we're discussing, this sort of like passive, moody, you know, emotional wallpaper style music, like that actually is not that weird, I think, in the in the music world. Yeah, I think that what it comes down to is that like we're currently in this moment where like all musicians are being convinced that this is a platform that's supposed to work for them from like your independent musicians to your big pop stars. And I think that that to me is like what is most striking about it is that like if you were an independent musician before this age of Spotify and streaming, like I don't think that the mechanisms of how commercial radio works necessarily would have a direct impact on your ability to get paid for your work or like your ability to connect with like new listeners. It was like different ecosystems. And the idea that all artists are supposed to conform to the same ecosystem that only works for certain artists is like, to me, what I think makes it different. So I think that a conversation that I've heard people have is that like, there needs to be alternative systems that work for like all different types of artists. And like maybe in the future, this like Spotify, chill playlist, lean back listening, emotional wallpaper style of distributing music will be something that works for certain artists, but it's clearly not something that works for all artists. And I don't think that all artists should have to be expected to conform to this model that absolutely doesn't work for them. So I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, it's just like not all like independent artists in the past would have had to be implicated in whether or not commercial radio like worked for them or not. 
Well, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the nice part, if you can call it nice, about the landscape of commercial radio for the last 90 years is that the independents were pretty much completely shut out of it. So the independent labels and the independent artists on independent labels just had this other marketplace to themselves. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. we had college radio, we had non-commercial radio, we had, you know, live performances, we had, we just had a different playing field because we knew that we weren't going to get any of our artists onto commercial radio because it was pretty much a closed market. And, you know, things have changed a little bit in that area, in that arena, simply because the way that labels have functioned has, has changed. You know, with the big recession, a lot of major labels laid off a ton of people and some of those people went out and started independent labels and then signed really popular artists. So Taylor Swift is now on an independent label which is a genuine independent label. It's not funded at all by major. You couldn't call it a major. But she's the biggest artist on Spotify. I think, oh, wait, no, is she number two? I think she's number two. I recently looked. I think it's like Ed Sheeran or somebody is number one. Yeah, I think Ed Sheeran's the most popular artist last year. Yeah. I also, you know, last year I've started doing some reporting on like folks who are trying to create alternatives to Spotify or people who are like creating tools that could help artists have more control over their career and the distribution of their music. And I think that hopefully that's something that we'll start seeing more of like going forward is people talking about like what a music environment could look like where like not all independent artists feel like they have to use things that don't work for them or like an environment where there's just like more alternatives and more tools or just like more conversation about it for now. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. There are a couple things that I wanted to touch on also in this article because it's really dense and really good. And one of the things that that really bothered me was the part where you talk about how corporate branded playlists, of which there are several, I guess, mm-hmm. are, you know, they're encouraged by Spotify to create brand playlists. And they talk, you know, it's like in the language of that Spotify uses in those guidelines is to, you know, create the sound of your brand, in in quotes, which really freaks me out when I think about that, the sound of your brand. Mm-hmm. And then those brands are putting artists on their playlists and not asking. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to like a Nike playlist, there are bands, as you point out, like Deerhoof, which, you know, is one of the most fiercely independent and, you know, very, very, I mean, they were on my label for 11 albums. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know firsthand how serious they are about not letting their music be equated with brands that they don't believe in. And so to, you know, wake up one morning as an artist and find that your song is being used on a playlist for a brand that you absolutely do not support is really an interesting problem, right, in this in this ecosystem, because under normal circumstances, a brand would have to license a song from an artist if they wanted to, you know, use it in a commercial of any sort. And the point that you make is how can you possibly say that a branded playlist is not a commercial for the brand? Right. Yeah. It was really striking to me how the copy on the Spotify for Brands website, which sort of seems kind of like a sales website or something, just standalone website where like Spotify tries to like lure brands to the platform by explaining to them how great it will be for them to connect with their customers and to like connect with people over music and to shape the soundtrack of their brand and show how cool they are because they love music. And, you know, on, on that aspect of their website, it's very much like suggesting that brand created playlists are a great tool for advertising. And they even, as I explained in the article, they compare 
the power of music for a brand to the power of like a really good Super Bowl commercial or something. And they talk about like all of these like powerful moments in history of music and helping brands. But then on Spotify, if you, so I read that, you know, on Spotify's terms and conditions or something like that, there's like a, a page that's like, you know, guidelines for brands. And it's literally like, don't think of this like it's an ad. Think of this like it's just like a playlist where you're sharing music or something along those lines. And then it's, you know, has all the guidelines that are like, you can't have more than 20 songs. A single artist can't appear more than twice. But there was just like, to me, like a stark difference between like what was on those terms and guidelines for brands versus what was on their website where they're trying to attract brands to the platform. And yeah, that was really striking to me. And just in general, I, I feel like this is an area of the platform that is, presenting a particularly like huge threat to artists' abilities to maintain livings because I feel like so often you hear about how syncs and licensing and commercials and advertising are like some of the only ways that artists can piece together a living for themselves anymore or like scrap together, you know, enough money to keep doing what they're doing. And if there's opportunities for brands to align themselves with musicians and artists that don't require, you know, paying tens of thousands of dollars or less than that in some cases, they're obviously going to pick the other route, which is just having Spotify playlists and tweeting out links to their cool playlists every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Something that was also like really interesting to me, it was interesting to learn about like the evolution of Starbucks music because, you know, Starbucks used to selling CDs in their stores to be like a really huge thing. And I don't really know exactly what happened there, but right around the time they stopped selling CDs in their shops was when they started this partnership with Spotify. And now, you know, in terms of corporate brand-owned playlists, I think Starbucks is one of the biggest presences on the platform from what I observed. They have tons of playlists and they even have this app where like when you're in their store, you can like use the app to figure out like what they're playing and kind of like save songs and interact with like their music in that way. Um, and yeah, it's it's just like a really scary and, and strange and weird that artists could be on these playlists and have no idea. Because also, as I write in the article, I didn't know about this at all until I found this website that kind of used Spotify's public API. And you could like type in a band's name and see what the most popular playlists they're on. So I was just typing in my friend's bands and I started seeing that some of them were on Starbucks and Nike playlists. And I would ask them about it and they had have no idea <laughs> that they right. were on them. Right. Definitely. And I think, I mean, what this whole thing gets to, this this notion of corporations being able to build a brand and, and make money off of artists without having to compensate the artist in any way. You know, the artist gets paid for its playlist streams, but then they but they don't have the option for consent. And, you know, I think that in our current music ecosystem, that's our biggest concern for artists is is just having the ability for consent. And that's why YouTube is such a villain, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because they don't even give artists the option to opt out of, you know, having their music used by any and all random people that those people can then, you know, make money off of. And, you know, Apple has the whole argument about, well, we have content ID, so eventually you get paid. Right, if you find it. And if you, you know, but you don't have the choice. You don't get to say, sorry, my music is not available for you to use in any way. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, you know, we're now, that's coming up here too with Spotify is is there doesn't appear to be an option for an artist to give consent or withhold consent. Instead, they just 
if their music's on Spotify, it can be uploaded onto any playlist. Is I mean, I, that's what how I understand it. Yeah, and it's weird because I guess, like, in the past, I don't know, you know, I feel like the internet so in so many ways facilitates this, like, culture of anyone being able to post a link to any song or, like, there's so many other ways in which brands have so-called editorial voices online, too. So it's, like, it's not, like, super unprecedented for, like, brands to be able to, like, capitalize on, like, reposting stuff or, like, having a blog or, like, having a feed where they'll post links and stuff. But I feel like this is just tightly wound up in a way that I think is unique. And I totally agree that there should be some sort of either process of artists having to consent because sort of like Greg Sonier from Gearhoof was talking about in the article, like, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of artists who wouldn't necessarily not want to be on those playlists if they're contributing to them getting a bigger check at the end of a cycle, but they should still know there should be like a conversation. And I'm also interested, this is something that I'm not sure about, but I'm interested in knowing, like, I'm sure that brands have to pay more to be on the platform. And like, to me, it's just like, if brands are playing more to be on the platform, then artists should be getting paid more to be on those playlists because otherwise it's just making more money for Spotify for artists to be exploited by these brands. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. She's got That was 2,000 Miles by The Every Others. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. This year, we focused on indie labels more than ever. These conversations made one thing clear. Even in 2018, every label has a unique strategy for adapting to or rebelling against industry developments. Jealous Butcher Records has endured almost 30 years of this kind of change. Here's part of my conversation with founder Rob Jones. So you've been doing this a long time. How have things changed? I mean, they've changed a ton, obviously, but for you, how have things changed in 27 years? Well, I started off with cassettes, and then those died, and now they're back again. (laughs) And then I did vinyl, and then that died, but I didn't ever stop doing it because I liked it. And then CDs came about, and I remember CDs being a big deal, and we spent a lot of time burning CDs in 98 to probably 2001. We burned so many CDs (laughs) of releases, and then just kind of re-landed on vinyl because 
there were a bunch of cool bands and nobody wanted to put out their vinyl because vinyl is really expensive and didn't sell very well. And I just like the format a lot. It's beautiful. The packaging is amazing. And I've always been a big proponent of awesome packaging. Yeah, so that's kind of how things are changing now. Vinyl's making a resurgence. Again, I've been told that for like the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. My dad will be like, hey, I read something about vinyl coming back. And friends will be like, you do vinyl, right? That's coming back. I'm like, it never really went away. And also, it's not like I'm selling a ton more. The profit margin is still Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the business has changed a lot and how you market and sell records has changed a lot. How you make records hasn't changed much at all. I mean, besides, you know, digital recording's gotten, you know, palatable and whatnot. But the the actual, like, it's it's all the stuff that kind of circles around the making the record that's changed drastically. Right, right. Distribution models, digital retail, online stores. I mean, when I first started the label and even when I first moved to Portland, like, it was all mail order. Like, mm -hmm. literally mail order. For those of you who don't understand that, that's where people send you a letter with a check and tell you the records they want. And then you mail them back to them as opposed to sending you an email or placing an order online. So how has Jealous Butcher changed for you? Has it ever been a full-time job? No, it's never been a full-time job. Okay. It's always been something of a passion project. Not a hobby because I think that belittles the you know, all the work that goes into it, because there's a lot of work that goes into it from myself and obviously from all of the artists that I work with. But there was a period of time in the early 2000s where I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, this is going to be for real. Because for some reason before it wasn't for real. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get budgets for records, $3,000, $5,000 a record. We're going to hire publicists. We're going to do the PR campaign. We're going to do all this. And the more I started to do that and the more I started to dig into that, the more I started to hate what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I just got to stop. I've got to quit running a record label. This isn't going to work. Like, I got to focus on something else. And then I'd be like, oh, but... I kind of want to put out this record by these guys or oh, we should maybe just do a seven inch with that band. Or, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I don't need to stop doing this. I just need to stop doing it the way that I'm supposed to be doing it. Mm. Air quotes. And then I realized I was just gonna, you know, do it the way that was fun because it has to be fun. Cause if it's not fun in some way or another, like it's not never going to be fun all the time. They're not, every aspect is going to be fun, but it's, got to at least be fun in some way otherwise there's no point in doing it well this is i mean i find this fascinating because i do this full-time like as a job and as yeah. and because of that there is to some extent a profit motive right like yeah. it definitely feels like even though profit is not our goal mm -hmm. and if an album doesn't sell as well as we hope it will then it's a bummer like nobody you know it's like but it's not the end of the world and yeah. there's some artists that we put out even though we're pretty sure you know, we'll be lucky to break even. Totally. But at the end of the day, this is a business and this is, you know, supports five or six people. Yep. So we do all, you know, we have to do stuff that will keep the lights on and the phones connected or whatever. Totally. So, and I, I kind of, it's really interesting because your way is kind of great in that you don't have to necessarily <laughs> have that exact, you can put stuff out that's really more purely driven by love. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about how it sells necessarily. 
or do you or do you still worry about it? Well, I still worry about it. I mean, I put a lot of thought into each release and how each release is going to be successful, but there's no one way that a release is successful, right? So like I came up with this series 33 project where like I would make 33 copies of a record because it's cool to have a physical artifact of something that people put time and love and energy into. And you can generally find that many people that are willing to pay money to also have a physical object. Right. Or you do a hundred copies of something because it's just a local band and they're going to just play local shows. They're not going to go on tour. And that way you're not sitting on a bunch of records, but they have something to sell and they have a fan base and everybody feels great about it. Mm -hmm. Or it's a, you know, a national act that has a following and then you're going to press a thousand copies of the record or 2000 copies of the record and you're going to put it, run it through the distribution channel and you're going to hire a publicist for it. So I try to approach each release on a kind of case-by-case basis and make sure that the artist and I are on the same page as to how much effort's going to be put into it and on each of our sides, right? Because it's never like, the record label's not the solution, right? <laughs> the record label right. doesn't make the band. Right. There right. might have been a period of time where that could have happened, but that quickly went away as I saw it, in the particularly in the indie realm. And... So we just try to figure out yeah, on a case-by-case basis how, how we're going to approach a record and what's going to make everybody feel good about how it came out. Yeah. And how do you feel like in general you have done with that model? Has it been successful for you? It has. It has. There are a few missteps, you know, there are a few times where you think something's going to be a little bit bigger than it ends up being, but there haven't been a whole lot of those things. And so that's felt really good. And as far as I know, most of my artists are super stoked with <laughs> the work that I do. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, your your model is extremely philanthropic, right? Because you're basically putting your time, your money, your energy, and your love into something that's really just for the benefit of the artist. Yeah. For, well, for sure. Totally. I mean, it's it's fun to make stuff and it fulfills my need to make things. Like, I like to build things too. And, but, I mean, it's like you put out a record and you get that box in the mail. You've got that record in your hand and you're like, yes, there's a thing. <laughs> I mean, quite often, honestly, the reason I put out records is because I want a copy. Right, right. I just happen to sometimes pay a little bit more for that copy than, you <laughs> know, normal more. humans would. <laughs> Six months of work <laughs> yeah, and money, yeah. Totally. That's a lot more of the normal, normal yeah. folks pay. Yep, yep. was Wonderland by The Robot Ate Me. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. 
When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. Back in August, I got to host Australian musician and Milk Records co-founder Jen Clower in studio. Her approach to the music business as an artist and label manager made the interview one of our most popular of the year. Anyway, I want to talk about I Manage My Music because I think that that is fascinating and mm. I feel like it could be the subtitle of this show. Sure. I feel like this is exactly what I'm always trying to do is help artists understand mm. what this business is about, how they should be approaching it as a business yeah. and how to deal with it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, the whole reason I started the workshops was because I couldn't work out how anyone was releasing music and not going into debt. Mm particularly in Australia, where we have this massive country, so expensive to travel around, you have to fly, and such a small population, like 25 million, not even the population of wider Tokyo. Yeah. So, you know, having a career there and making money from it is rare. Right. And so I thought, but that shouldn't be the, you know, like if that's the only criteria, then we would have no hardly any bands and most of them would be terrible. Like the ones that we did have left would just be terrible. So I started to ask other artists to come in and just talk honestly about their experience. And what I discovered was that nearly everyone was in debt. Mm-hmm. Most of us didn't talk about it because it's embarrassing and you feel like a failure. You've already rebelled against society and your family by being an artist and now you're the loser that's in debt. Often we were in debt to our friends and family and loved ones. There's a lot of shame. And, you know, I think people come along to the workshops going, I'm going to learn how to release my next record and be really successful. And what they walk away with is, I think, first of all, hearing someone talk about all of their dirty secrets Mm -hmm. and realising that it's okay to feel all of the stuff like envy and jealousy, like I talk about all, like it's it's not what you'd think. You know, I basically give permission to everyone there to just be human, mm. to have all the feelings of what it feels like to fail and go into debt and be envious of other people and just I talk about it really openly. So it kind of frees people up. But I think also just a greater acceptance, like rather than going, I need to be here for my life to be worthwhile, is to just go, be where you are and make the most of where you are. Because if you're constantly looking down over there for someone to make you famous or some magical manager to come in on a white horse and sweep you off your feet so you never have to work again and they'll do everything for you or the idea that I'll upload my genius music onto SoundCloud and then the people will discover me. Like I just tell them point blank, no one cares. Mm. No one is out there looking to discover you. What you need to do is create your best work and then get a plan together (laughs) So then the other part of the workshop is like talking about all of the stuff that and all of the tools are available to release your own music. And this is the thing, right, if it's really good, you and I know this, people listening know this, 
it will be heard. Right. It will be heard. Right. Great music does not go unheard. Exactly. Exceptional art might sometimes not have the same amount of, you know, there's often work where you go, oh, that, I can't believe that wasn't more successful, but you definitely knew about it, right? And I think it's just like if you release your best work with the time and resources available to you and you play your best shows and playing really good live shows is really important because that's where you build an audience. Because if you or I go in to see a band and they f- blow us apart, we leave and we tell lots of people. Word of mouth is still the thing. Like we watch something on TV, you know. Oh, my God, have you seen that new series? Like I'm not sitting reading reviews online to see what people (laughs) think of shit anymore. I couldn't care what reviewers think. Right. But if you come to me and go, Jen, you've got to go and see this band tonight in Portland. They are just ripping it apart. Just put out their first EP. Everyone's like, I'm there. Right. And so just reminding them that you have the power. It's absolutely in your hands, but you have to create your best work. You can't just like cruise around being average. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then all of that other stuff is there when you need it. And people will come in and help you and work with you if you're... I mean, I think a great example of a band in Australia at the moment in Melbourne who's really kind of did very indie release was Cable Ties. It's a three-piece punk rock outfit led by Jenny McKechnie. And, yeah, they just released really great music. And I remember I was, like, driving along in my car listening to Triple R and I just heard their first single. And, like, you know that thing, like, you hear a lot of stuff on the radio. You're like, oh, yeah. And I just, like, pulled over and went, what is this? This is sick. And waited for the back announce. Right. And then I was, like, on my phone going, and I never do that. I was, like, cable ties. Who are these cable ties? <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, all of a sudden I needed to know all about cable ties. And they're one of the few bands that I went and approached, like, uh-huh. had meetings with. They ended up going with Poison City, which I think was a very good – actually, I meant to mention Poison City before, who were very good friends. And I think releasing some of the best rock in Australia at the moment. But, yeah, they ended up going with Poison City, which I think was actually a really good match. And But, yeah, I think the problem that artists get into is, like, worrying about how things will be received or how is it going to go when. And it's like, nah, if you put all of your energy into the creation and the live show and what you're about and the quality of the lyrics and how you want it to sound and the people that you bring into your creative circle, the engineers, whatever, you go out into your community, you support your community, you see loads of bands all the time, you educate yourself about the local scene, educate yourself about music, then all of that other stuff will come. Mm-hmm. But I think too often people put the cart before the horse and they're trying to like line up all of this bullshit. I think the thing that I've realised is like people in the music industry, which is also a stupid term for basically small businesses trying to make a buck, and just managing to get by but I think like those people only come down and start watching you when you're already playing to a few people you know where where people are already starting there's a buzz you know but you've got to create that buzz exactly I love it I think that your workshop series should be called I manage my expectations it totally is that is (laughs) I'm going to change it I'm going to change it to I manage my expect your expectations. Yeah. I manage your expectations <laughs> over a day. But the great thing is like I, I take them on this arc. 
So they sort of like start and I'm just like, just sort of like really sad sort of stories and talk about how hard it is and all the pain and the failure and my own personal pain and failure and then I slowly build them up so that by the end of the day I'm like, you've got the power, stop giving it away, stop giving it away, you can do it all. And they're like, how do I get on? I'm like, make your own label. None of the labels want you on it. They're all too busy going into debt trying to put out music. Right, like, right. Do your own label. You're going to learn so much about it. But there's this thing with artists where they are constantly trying to hand over the responsibility and it's like it doesn't work like that. And I've never understood that. And I, I mean, I'm so glad to have you say this. This is going to be the episode where I'm just like, if you want to listen to an episode of The Future of What, go listen to the one with Jen Clore because she says everything that I've been saying for four years yeah. in one condensed area. Because honest to God, that's exactly what this is all about. It's like artists have to manage their expectations. They have to have an understanding of what success really looks like mm. and how it's different for everybody. Mm. And they have to not be waiting for that thing. It's like, I feel like they have, yeah. they're have they all future tripping about something's going to happen. And then after that, everything's going to change. And it's so out of, it's, they always put it out of their own hands. Yeah. They always make it, somebody's going to open a door for me. And there's a gatekeeper somewhere who's going to come along and fix this. Like when I get signed to a label, this is going to happen. Or when I get played on this radio station, this is going to happen. I mean, and I saw it in my own band. I played in bands in the 90s in New York City. Yeah. And we all believe the same thing, which is totally. if I get that Saturday night gig at Mercury Lounge, you know, then there's going to be an A&R person in the audience and we're, that's it. We're just going to be like, that's all we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So we fought each other for those Saturday night gigs at Mercury Lounge. And now having done this for 12 years, run a label for 12 years, I'm like, none of that is the thing. What I'm looking for is exactly what you said, mm -hmm. a band who's just doesn't give a crap mm -hmm. and is out there making the best music they can mm -hmm. and making it on their own and doing their own thing. Mm. And they're out on a tour with, you know, their friends band and they're doing this and they're doing that. And they released this EP and they started their own label because nobody else was going to do mm. it. And they're just on the train, you know? Totally. And also, you know, you work in the music industry, so maybe learn something about exactly. it. Exactly. You know, like, you wouldn't have someone working on the stock exchange who knew nothing about the stock market. Of course, at this moment, <laughs> yeah. America is not in a good position to say that to anybody because we have somebody <laughs> running our country who knows nothing about government or laws or and anything. there's a great example of what happens when you don't know what you're doing. But it's, it's really worthwhile because I think there's been for a long time like this, like, oh, it's not cool to know about the music business and like you're just selling out that's not punk rock i'm like the most punk rock thing you can do is learn about the music industry absolutely because then you have choices about how you're going to do it and the thing that i've discovered is like if you do things really differently to everyone else and it works everyone's all of a sudden interested in you and i think that was the thing with milk as well was like we didn't do it like everyone else did and it wasn't because we we're like oh, we want to be really interesting and different over here in the corner. But it was like we have limitations, limitations of time and resources and money. And so basically the way we built that label was that we couldn't go into debt, we didn't accept money from outside parties, that we were fully self-sustaining through our own contributions and that if we didn't have the money we had to go and make it. Mm -hmm. So we did possible campaigns, we did Christmas shows, we, you know, 
did all of that kind of fundraising stuff. So I basically took what I had learnt about being a successful, self-sustainable, independent musician and applied it to the label and it worked. That was the cool thing is like I'm running these workshops on telling people one thing and then doing it with the label and then being able to report back and go, and it's working over here. I was able to develop a pretty simple philosophy and I think Milk Records is a living example that you can run a business without going into debt and without needing to go and ask someone else to loan you money. And the whole reason I wanted to create that was because I was going through that process with my own music career and I made very firm boundaries that there was no more debting, that if I wanted to make a record for $20,000 and I only had 10, I had to go and find the other 10, that I couldn't take out any loans, blah, blah, blah. So I was doing that with my own music career, wanted to apply that model to Milk because I believe that when you do that, there's lots of positives. One is self-esteem and artists generally are coming from a place of shame, not being enough, being the loser in the family, being the black sheep, going against society. So, yeah, we didn't go into debt. The other thing is you know that you did it yourself. Mm -hmm. So there's no weird other indebted feeling of like, oh, but it was Sony. You know, it's like, nah, we did it. Mm -hmm. This is because people were attracted to what we were doing. We weren't loudly promoting it or spending loads of money going, look at this. It was just like if you're attracted to this. And it's always the way, right? It was that thing you were saying about the band. The band that everyone's hot for is the band that doesn't give a shit, mm-hmm. you know. And it's not that Milk didn't give a shit, but it was like, hey, this is what we're doing over here and if you like it and you like the music, you're very welcome. And that's it. You exactly. Know? End of story. So not going into debt, self-esteem, knowing that you did it yourself and that's sort of the main philosophy was like making something that was truly our own and our music communities, you know, we own it. Christmas time I was the weeper of woes The families of mine I'd seen them all become invisible There's a love that is all and undying Closing off and denying ourselves this gift. I want you to know me. I can only give you love.
That was The New Year by Ahmad Wasif. We're excited to announce our new podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Future of Wet listeners couldn't get enough label talk last year, so I asked a few experts to help answer a question I hear all the time. Do I need a record label? Justin, welcome to the Future of What. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So tell me, first off, what does Missing Peace Group do? Missing Peace Group, the company I work for, we are a multifaceted company. We are primarily known for our PR and media relations work, and that's kind of my role in the company. I'm a publicist primarily, though I help in some of our other projects. But in addition to that, we also manage a number of artists. We have a fairly substantial digital marketing and social media team as well, which kind of provides a different set of services that sometimes overlap with PR, but also operate independently. And on occasion when we want to, we function as a record label. So we basically, you know, have a wide breadth of activities. So uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because it's very popular topic of conversation right at the moment where I hear from a lot of people, you know, why do you need a record label? Why do people need a record label? And I always answer them the same way, which is that actually it really depends on the band. And it's not that everybody needs a record label and it's a cookie cutter model that fits everyone. What you actually really need is someone to do your business. And so, you know, when artists are at different stages in their careers, they need different things. And I've been looking at the missing Peace Group roster and, you know, you have some bigger artists on there and they're, it's kind of a perfect example because, you know, if you have a, a larger artist that, let's say, used to be on a major label, is no longer on a major label, but has a fan base has people, you know, guaranteed that they can sell their stuff to and, and has a, you know, connection to their fans. Those people can do very well by coming to, you know, an organization like Missing Peace Group and saying, hey, let's put together the services, a package of services for me that I need that's tailored exactly to me. Is that what you're finding? That's true. When we have clients like that, for sure. I'm Working with Dave Davies of the Kinks right now, for example, we'll be announcing something from him soon, though I suppose by the time this comes out, that's already out there. And that's an example of that kind of client where, yes, I'd say that he has a fairly well-established fan base. And so that kind of campaign, that kind of relationship is going to be based more on lining up targets that we want. It's more about enacting a plan. We have a better sense of how that's going to go. And we also work with a lot of emerging artists, too, on the other end of the spectrum. And it's a different kind of ballgame then. It's equally important, arguably more so. But in those cases, it's more about the service we're providing is helping establish and solidify that initial public impact, which can translate into expanding their fan base and retaining fans. Exactly. And I'm assuming that you have seen an increase in recent years of young bands that are unsigned coming to you specifically to get to hire you guys to do PR for them. Yeah, there's a steady stream of that. And we love, you know, getting submissions from all artists. We, you know, love listening to stuff. And we work with any artist who we think has something, meaning that, you know, can succeed in what we do and, you know, has set up a, a decent structure for themselves, if not a team, to help make that process go smoothly. 
Yeah, it's been increasing because I think, and it's all, this is almost ironic, but I think people are finding it harder to make an impact kind of as the landscape continues to change both on and off the internet in terms of media opportunities. So, you know, our services are in demand and, you know, we want to do right by all our clients for that, despite the challenges of getting press in this day and age. Let's talk a little bit about some of those challenges, because I know certainly from our perspective as a label that, you know, the the way the PR market has gone and sort of there's just publications in general has been really weird because it was like for a while it was just an explosion, right? There were there were like so many outlets that now suddenly the world of blogs has made it so that we can get our artists on, you know, tons of stuff across the country and the world. And now I feel like it's contracting again in this weird way. Yeah, you're right about that. To a certain extent, anyways, as as far as blogs go, yeah, there was definitely like a bubble that I think has kind of burst at this point a few years back. I mean, there were the heady days of, I don't know, the the mid-aughts or something when it seemed like everybody, you know, who had a good head on their shoulders about music criticism could have a blog. Therefore, every artist that was producing good music could get the recognition they deserved. And while that was, you know, even unrealistic for the time, I do think that there was more of a clear pipeline or a media pipeline anyways, from like local blog buzz to bigger blog buzz to pitchfork review to having some sort of starting point for a sustainable career. That can still happen, but that is, I don't know if that's the recommended strategy, I would say right now, that would be most promising. Yeah, I think a lot of blogs have dropped off. The relevancy of them i mean blogs are always gonna be relevant i love music blogs and don't get me wrong like i don't i don't think that we should ignore them i pitch them all the time and they do great writing in many cases that's cool but in terms of just looking at the cold hard facts and getting those bigger results and working up the chain to a pitchfork a consequence of sound a rolling stone it's not as easy a ladder to climb just in in part because there's been more consolidation And as you said, a lot of mid-level outlets have folded, really. What do you tell artists? Because I'm sure you run into this all the time. Because I feel like this is kind of the state of artists. And I was the same way when I was in a band. There's this sort of strange belief that if we only get X, then everything is going to follow like dominoes after that. And X can be like a pitchfork review or... X can be like a specific show. Artists so frequently have this sort of weird mentality of like, if we just get this one thing to happen, then definitely everything's going to be like roses after that. Yeah, that definitely happens. And people do have that mindset to a certain extent. I do think that artists today are a little more business savvy and realistic than they have been in years past. I think we're all just a little bit more jaded nowadays for many reasons. But, you know, one of the positive aspects of that is I do encounter that a little bit less than I used to. But yeah, I mean, artists, they're music listeners, they're watching videos, they're going to these sites, they're reading these magazines, and they see themselves there and just as they had that music discovery fan experience with one of their favorite artists that they found at one of these places they feel like oh like I can be that I can do that because that one thing that got me into it you know can be that for a hundred thousand other people and that's just one of those many dreams that make people want to be a musician and you know have an audience it's okay to have that thought, I guess, but you have to balance it against the more realistic, larger, long-term plan and the fact that 
there is no real single media hit you can rely on to make that happen. And it's not smart to hope for that. You, you want to consider everything to be a slow ramping up of the volume over a extended period of time. You know, that's what we would advise our clients. And that's the approach that we take. We want to develop long-term relationships with both outlets and our clients and, you know, everybody else in the industry so that when the next album comes, when the next video comes, when the next thing happens, we're building on something that's already been there. So I think taking a cumulative approach to this, a long-term vision, you know, think of this as building your media profile rather than trying to just break through. That, I think, is the smarter perspective to take. Yeah, that's wise. Now, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when one really good Pitchfork review would actually sell a ton of records. Like, that could substantially change a band's career trajectory, you know, like if they got Pitchfork Best New Music for a release or something. Is there anything in the marketplace like that these days? Or is it really just like what you said, it's more of a slow burn and a steady increasing of awareness? I don't think there's anything like that that can kind of guarantee the immediate hit that the old Pitchfork review used to. I think there are things that if they catch fire on social media or in the public consciousness can serve that function. I think like something like a really killer NPR Tiny Desk concert could break through or, you know, a potential late night TV musical guest there. They're still making an impact on that, with that as a platform. Certainly the viewership is at you know the highest you can get there. If occasionally still Pitchfork can make that happen, but usually it's more, I think, with repeated hits there rather than one single thing. There's really very little that I would yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to struggling to think of any good example of that right now. There are a number of super wonderful, great media opportunities that I would love as a wish list for any one of my clients or our clients, but there's no magic bullet. Right. I know. That's the sad part. The sad truth. That's a subtitle of the show. It's like the future of what? The sad truth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That's the, 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 the music industry, the sad truth. Exactly. So I know this show is listened to by a lot of up and coming young musicians. And so can you talk about what you look for in a client, you know, when someone sends you an email and says, hey, we're looking for press. What kinds of things are you looking for in bands? I mean, I'm assuming that you guys obviously don't take on every single person who emails you because then you'd have, you know, a 3,000 person roster at all times. I mean, that's, that's just untenable. So you must have some screening mechanisms. Yeah. And, you know, after a while, you kind of just get a feel for Understanding like this band's ready and this band, well, they don't quite seem like they're there. But specifically, you want to see that the band has a structure and certain assets in place ready to go such that there is a story and there is content that can be what you're promoting. So specifically for content, you know, <laughs> you need to have recordings and you need to have them, you know, something either in the pipeline or something new coming out that's unreleased. I, I guess it should be said that, you know, promoting something that has already been officially released and is out there is sadly almost a non-starter. It happens, but it's, you know, we, we would rarely take on a client that is hoping to promote music that's been around for a while. I think most artists know that, but, you know, it's, it should be said. But also, you know, things like press photos, having a pretty solid history of being on the road and touring, I think is also important because that kind of shows a level of commitment and seriousness to what you're doing, but also 
knowing that there's going to be a tour attached to the album release makes it easier both for the writers and editors that were pitching to take the whole project seriously, but also to pursue media opportunities in the cities that you visit. And if a band has a team or a partial team put together, a manager, radio promo, a label, you know, those things are all good. I wouldn't say that they're absolutely necessary, but the more pieces you have in place, the more there is to talk about and the greater chances of success there are. So in in short, PR representation is not the starting point. That's more like, it's more like the midpoint or somewhere along the way when you feel like, okay, we have our thing. Our thing is ready to go. It's going to go. We want to make sure it hits with the maximum impact. We're going to engage in a press campaign and bring on a company like Missing Peace to help make that happen. Yeah, no, I. that's exactly, I mean, I'm super glad to hear you say that. You know, and I think it's something that artists have to hear just the words when you said for press outlets to take them seriously. You know, as I, I try to say this to young bands all the time, you have to take yourself seriously before you're going to get other people to take you seriously, right? And that means when you come into the marketplace, you have to be ready for it. You have to be poised for it. You have to have exactly like you said, you know, a tour under your belt, a tour planned, you know, some touring history, be great to have a recording for a label. It's not always a hundred percent that you have to have those recordings beforehand, but you certainly at least have to have demos and something that we can listen to. And that's, that's easier and easier as the years go on because of technology. I mean, people almost always have songs out there in the marketplace that they've released themselves before they, you know, do anything else, which is great. That's very helpful. But yeah, it, taking a band seriously, you can't do that until they're taking themselves seriously. And that means, you know, having the correct attitude and realizing, you know, how to be a band in this world. And that's our show. You can hear these full conversations and more by subscribing to The Future of What wherever you get your podcasts. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard The Every Others, The Robot Ate Me, Ahmad Wasif, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. 